Welcome, everyone, to episode 43 of the Gen X Photography Podcast. Thank you all for listening to this podcast for the last 42 episodes, and now we're on 43. That's uh, quite a good thing. Well, with me today, I'm your host, Mario Piper, and with me today are my co-hosts, Julianne Piper, my wife. Hi, Julie. How's it going? It's going good. Good, good. And uh, my other co-host, Suzanne Peterson. Suzanne, how's it going? Fantastic. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad we're back. Yeah, me too. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Great to have you guys, of course. And, of course, we have a special guest today and a really cool guest in my estimation. Uh, and that's none other than Dylan Cowley from Randolph, Vermont, our local hometown here in Vermont. So, Dylan, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being on. And we hope to get to know you a little bit better uh, in this interview. But before we uh, proceed with the interview, I just wanted to uh, go through everybody's week and see how everybody's doing. So we'll start with you, Julie. How's your week been going? It's been going good. I'm yeah. assuming you're meaning photographically. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I have one new thing that I'm trying, but I don't know how it turned out yet. But I'm trying with um, my Yashika C doing some in-camera movement pictures. So yeah. I shot my first roll and I'm going to scan them tonight and see if I got something cool or crumbs. What film did you use for that? Uh, Acros 2, I think. Nice, nice. Acros is a, reportedly a very beautiful film to work with. So I know, uh, uh, who was it? Um, oh, another podcaster anyways. He loves Acros. He just goes on and on about how beautiful Acros is. So. Ted Vieira. Yes, Ted Vieira. That's right. <laughs> Acros, I probably said it wrong. Sorry. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> so, yeah, cool. Very good. Well, Suzanne, how's your uh, week been going, photographically speaking? It is. It has been kind of crazy. Yeah. But in a good way. In a good way. First, Julie, I did shoot some Acros, Acros also for the first time and loved it. So I'm excited to see what you got with your in-camera movement. Um, so for me, I, I've actually had quite a few... Uh, get gigs basically hired out gigs which my my winters sit pretty dormant just because it's cold and nobody wants to go outside and shoot and all of a sudden they all hit and so it's been a whirlwind but very good things so um but one really exciting thing was my daughter went to italy and she loves shooting film so i set her off with two point and shoots just in case one died and um and like she took six or seven rolls of film, like that's all you're taking for eight days. But I have to remember she's not me. Um, but anyway, so she brought them back. So I had uh, the exciting time to get everything scanned um, because of how busy I was. I actually sent it off for develop only, but then I scanned it all. So that was really, really fun to get to see what she created um, in Italy, which are just so many, so many wonderful pictures. And I picked up a couple of bulk rolls. I got a I wrote it down, the Eastman 200T. So it's 5217. It's a Vision 2 200T film. Oh. And I'm waiting for my second bulk loader to come because I wanted to have one to bulk load color and one to bulk load black and white. And then I also got some Ultrafine 400, which Roxana highly recommended. And I'm excited to try that for my next black and white film. That's cool. A lot of people like the Ultrafine 400. 
um, I've never tried it myself, but a lot of yeah. people swear by it. So yeah, I've never I I love her stuff, and she's like, "This is a great film. That's a good price." And I was like, "I'm in." <laughs> That's cool. Maybe so, yeah. it will. Maybe it will compete against the Arista, huh? <laughs> oh, maybe I don't know, man. I'm so committed to my Arista. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Dylan, how's your week been going? Oh, photographically, my week's been going um, pretty well overall. Um, I was shooting uh, a bit yesterday for work for the the White River Valley Herald, which is the newspaper that I work for. And uh, and then when I got home from work, I was feeling a little restless, and I uh, loaded up my Mamiya C330 with some uh, expired Fuji Velvia 50 and decided to get some uh, some kind of magic hour, golden hour shots uh, around downtown Randolph. And I walked out the door and I immediately realized I missed golden hour by about about 20 minutes because my shutter speeds are coming in at about one fifteenth of a second. So I was like, okay, I'm going to have to be real crafty here if I'm going to get any images. So I ended up shooting about half a roll um, yesterday. And everything else has been mostly um, working for the paper and a lot of writing. So it's um, it's actually a good day when I can get out and photograph because that means I'm getting out in the world rather than being glued to the desk. And um, yeah, yesterday I was shooting uh, the first part of the uh, a charity bike fundraiser, like a, a bicycle kind of um, gravel enduro, I think is their term for it. Yeah. And so just figuring out like, how can I get pictures of people on bikes that are interesting and compelling and give uh, readers and viewers an idea of what it was like to be there on that day. And uh, and I left right before the rain started, so it all worked out. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I think uh, Julie and I happened to see a few of those bikers uh, in Tunbridge. Tunbridge is, a, mm-hmm. for you listeners, Tunbridge is a local town nearby Randolph where we live. So, but yeah, we saw, I think we saw four bikers on the back road. So, and they, they, they were all riding uh, gravel bikes too, so. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Cool. Well, as far as my week uh, has gone, um, I inherited the predecessor to the C330, which is the C33 <laughs> from my wife. Wow. It's got a few issues. I need to to get it fixed, but I'm really looking forward to to using this camera more. I've shot uh, two rolls, expired uh, Tri-X 400 from the 70s, and also um, P- Ilford Pan F- Pan F plus. I, sh- I shot a roll with this. Got seven out of twelve images. So <laughs> the five of the images were blank. But oh boy, <laughs> uh, venturing into medium format territory. <laughs> so, all right. Well, uh, let's get on with our interview. And to start us off, uh, Suzanne, would you uh, be willing to start us off in the interview? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Dylan, thank you so much for being a part of the podcast today. I was really excited uh, when Mario and Julie told me that this was our guest for the day. I looked you up and saw that you are indeed a documentary photographer and work for the newspaper, and I think that's really cool. I feel like I'm talking to a celebrity right now. <laughs> I really have never talked to somebody who's done that, so that's really exciting for me. Um, my my first question that I came up with when I was looking through your your work, which is wonderful, um, what is your background and what drives you um, like what's the force behind what you do for work that you wanted to get into documentary photography um, and just what your background is? Ah, okay. Well, the the short answer is uh, I like telling stories. And when you kind of extrapolate that out to documentary toy- storytelling, that's I like telling stories that are true and that are real and that are, involve real people and real places and real emotions. And you extrapolate <laughs> that out even further to um, 
to documentary photography and that's telling those stories with uh, images and, and pictures and uh, the printed word every now and then as well. So really that's kind of the basis of where a lot of my background comes from. Um, educationally, um, I graduated from a Burlington College some years ago with a triple major in photography, documentary studies, and media activism. And so that's really one more extrapolation of telling real stories with pictures about things that are important, about things that matter. And that kind of dovetailed fairly seamlessly into a, a career in journalism, photojournalism, and newspaper photography, even though um, when I was in school, I didn't necessarily want to be a newspaper photographer. I was much more geared toward being a a magazine photographer, uh, my my general photographic process in terms of thinking of a documentary project is um, I have a big idea and then it's just the process of editing and that downward to something that's manageable for a normal human being. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so it's not uncommon for me to p- pick up a project and say, okay, this is going to be a five-year project or this is going to be a 10-year project. So those are typically, you know, I, I have this big iceberg of an idea and I slowly kind of hack away at it for for years at a time. My first big documentary project was um, about a general store in Chelsea, Vermont, my hometown. Uh, And I photographed the same space, this general store, and the same six or seven people for um, about 10 hours a day for two years. Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) That's cool. And that ended up generating about 26,000 pictures. and so that was uh, this whole long process. It was right at the height of the um, of the housing crash and the recession of 2008. So looking oh. at small businesses and looking at how business owners and employees and workers, how are they getting by when everything kind of goes off the rails at the big uh, on Wall Street? You know, when you look at a macro level of what's happening across the country, my first instinct is to find how that's playing out at a micro level, at a local level, and at a, a really intimate level. And so looking for those places where everyone knows a person that that has a place in those stories. Everyone knows a business owner who's struggling to get by. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows a person who's working at a small business who's really hoping that the economy survives long enough for them to keep their job. And those are the like really impactful stories that I've always been drawn to. And those are the, the friendships and the relationships I've always been um, able to cultivate. And I've also been lucky enough to, to cultivate. And yeah, that was my first major project. Uh, my next major project after that was um, documenting the Occupy movement when that um, kind of came up. And so I photographed, uh, I made about 50,000 pictures for that one. And I photographed in Burlington, Vermont, but also Boston, New York, uh, Chicago, the NATO conference in Chicago, um, uh, eviction resistance in Minneapolis. I was out in Eugene doing some um, environmental justice um, documentary work. And I was also covering the presidential campaign that was happening at the time. So I found myself down in Tampa, Florida, and also in uh, Philadelphia at one point and DC as well. So I was kind of bouncing around all over the country, um, photographing these movements of people uh, essentially standing up for what they believe in, often things that were overlapping or intersecting with other stories that I was working on. So people thinking about business, like when you have uh, an, econo- an economic system that's exploiting people and kind of really extracting a lot of wealth from workers, it's not you know a huge leap to see the person who was working in that general store two years ago is now protesting on the street during the Occupy movement. You can see where all these ideas really begin to mesh with one another and intersect. And so kind of all of those ideas circulating around one another um, helped inform that project. 
And now I'm working on a, a project about the uh, the ecological and uh, the social ecology. Now I'm working on a project about the social ecology of the White River Valley, which is the, the watershed where I live in now, um, hence the White River Valley Herald the newspaper that I work for. And looking at the, the climate data that exists out there right now, if there's going to be which seems to indicate to me that if there's going to be a decade when local water systems and watersheds and river systems go from being one thing to being something else, that decade is this decade. There were swimming holes that I remember when I was growing up in this area when I was 16 that were maybe, you know, five to seven feet deep. And a couple summers ago, they are five to seven inches deep. Oh, and wow. that, that, yeah, that scared the hell out of me. And so that kind of began this process of exploring these natural communities and trying to understand how do we relate to these systems? How do these systems relate to us? And what happens when the bottom falls out? That's deep. Yeah. <laughs> like, Def not, not just literally speaking. Um, do you, are these oh, assignments, like I see you, have, you probably have a lot going on at once. Are these assignments that are initiated from the newspaper or do you also, I'm assuming you also work on your own personally driven projects that you, are you trying to, pitch them to somebody or is this just your own personal passion? Oh, it's a, a little bit of all of the above. The big major projects I did on my own and I'm doing on my own. Um, the, the first project about the general store, I did that one even before I was in college. Um, and then the Occupy project I did while I was in college and now the, the, the major like um, social ecology project I'm doing independently of my newspaper work. Uh, my newspaper work is, you know, three, four, five, sometimes six separate assignments uh, per week about all sorts of different things. I might be photographing the first baby that's born on New Year's Day uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. one day, and then the next day I'm out in a cow field, like photographing like cows or like um, people tapping uh, maple trees. It's it's all of the above. Um, and actually, cool. the, the first baby every year is my favorite assignment that I get Aww. each year. Is, that's, yeah, that's <laughs> the one I always look forward to. <laughs> it's the one story every single year that is always absolutely positive. There's no, there's no dark cloud hanging over that one. It's just here's a new voice in the world, and I get right. to introduce them to everybody. So that's my favorite assignment each year. That's wonderful. Very that's nice. So cool. Thank you. That's awesome. Julia, do you have a ne the next question? Well, one of my questions you started, you partly answered just now about your project here with the watershed. Um, you just explained what it is, but I'm curious what your plan is with that project. I know you've been taking pictures. You, you know, we saw some of them when we were at the dark room of the forest there in town. And um, how are you planning to share what you know this information that you're collecting and reporting are you gonna put it in a article or an exhibit or just online or is it just simply something that you feel the need to do for yourself uh it's probably going to be again kind of an all of the above approach and it begins with something that i feel the need to to examine and to look at at a personal level because it's it's something that i i really care about um I feel like for a, a podcast about photography, we're suddenly talking about all of Dylan's little obsessions and not much about all the gear and everything. But um, yeah, like these, these are things that like I, I very deeply care about. And the end result of that um, is probably going to be a book uh, of, of some heft, I imagine, if I keep going along at the pace that I have been for the past year or so. 
but also an exhibit to kind of go along with the book. I always kind of look at books as the kind of the permanent standing record of an exhibit. And the Family of Man exhibit is kind of one of the classic examples of like this huge exhibit that everyone saw, but also became a book that even more people saw and even more people have had access to. So I, I kind of look at those things as kind of being knitted together in a certain way. But in terms of structuring the project itself, it's that's a challenging one, especially when the story is kind of playing out in real time. Uh, when I was photographing um, my project about the general store, which is a store called Will's Store, um, you know, I, I wasn't sure if that store was going to survive the project or not. I wasn't sure if that store was going to close or not. And as I'm photographing, I'm thinking, like, what do I do if it closes? What do I do if it doesn't close? Like, you try to make narrative sense of these things, and sometimes there isn't necessarily a resolution or a, a clean narrative that presents itself to you. So you kind of have to go with what happens. And that's what you do as a documentary storyteller. But at the big scheme of things, it's kind of like taking a cross country road trip. You know, you're headed to California you know, you're headed for the Pacific ocean, but you know, every little turn that you're going to make in Nebraska isn't necessarily what you're thinking of when you leave from new England, you're, you're just thinking, okay, West. And that's kind of where I am with this river project now. It's like, I'm, I'm headed West. I'm headed towards something. I'm following the river wherever it's taking me and I'll know when I get there. Yeah. I'm also very, passionate about the environment and there was something that happened this is off topic I'm sorry I'll be really <laughs> um, where I live like a lot of land is all owned by one farm which I just love because he's keeping it open and it's not being broken up but when my kids were little I would take them on these long walks and we had all the vernal pools kind of I knew where they all were so that was like spring. We would just go and play in all these vernal pools. And then one year, uh, they tilled them. Oh, no. Tilled them to get rid of these mud spots that were inconvenient. And it just absolutely broke my heart. I don't even like those fields anymore because I go and I look and I'm like, there's no vernal pool. Um, so I totally get wanting to document the area that you're taking all the photos of, which I now go and walk there in the Randolph Town Forest mm -hmm. much more often than I do in my own fields that now lack what really drew me into them for all those years. So that's really cool that you're, you know, going forth and just doing your own thing, documenting what you're seeing instead of just finding a new place to walk like I do. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, sometimes just finding a new place to walk is what you you come around a corner that you've been around a thousand times and you you walk into the weeds a little bit in one direction or another just to see like what's around this side of the uh, the tree or this little bend in the river. And you go like 10 steps further than you had you gone before. And suddenly you're looking at something in a way that's just a little bit different from the million times that you'd seen it before. And that's where some of the best pictures happen. So it's it's a process of like meeting out like what is what is familiar and what is revealing and those things can overlap sometimes. So it's, it's fun. <laughs> well, and it makes it, um, it, it makes you more of an aware person uh, when you step out of your comfort zone and see a little bit beyond what you already know, you know? So, um, so my first question for you is maybe a bit, <laughs> a bit more prosaic, um, but <laughs> <laughs> you uh you know you work for the paper and uh, of course you use a digital camera i've seen 
I've actually used your digital camera one time uh, when you interviewed me for the paper. Uh, and you have a really nice, I think it, it's a Fuji X, is it X-T1 or what, what do you have? Uh, it was an X-T1, yeah. The, the okay. shutter on that camera actually died mid-shoot uh, recently. So um, my boss was oh, kind no. enough to, um, to throw down for an X-T2, which is what I'm using now. So I can use my same lenses and everything. And they're almost identical cameras. But, uh, but yeah, the Fuji X-T1 and X-T2 is what I use. Nice. I love the Fuji cameras. Um, but, you know, you use these cameras uh, for your professional work. But I also know because we took, you know, we've talked about it. We've taken, uh, Julie and I have taken um, darkroom, a darkroom class with you as our teacher. So you also shoot film. So what keeps you coming back to film when digital is just so much easier? <laughs> I think, well, there's, I think kind of written into your question is, um, an assumption, I think a fair assumption that digital is easier. But I think in some ways, digital might be easier and more convenient, but film is more forgiving in certain ways. Anyone who's yeah. shot color negative film or black and white film knows that like taming those highlights is way easier on film than it is with digital. You got to kind of thread the needle every time with digital. Uh, it's a lot like shooting slide film, actually. And, yeah. um, but also for me, like, I remember that thinking about this when I was um, at SVA in New York. Uh, I did a semester at SVA before New York just kind of priced me out because it was so crazy expensive there. Uh, but I remember like doing all my digital photography classes, and then I would go to the film lab. And I always had so much more fun in the darkroom, and I had so much more fun uh, developing my film. And... I missed kind of the tactile experience of mm -hmm. film photography. It's much more intimate. You're like you're 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 literally making something rather than just pushing around ones and zeros all the time. You're you're making something real. It's, if the hard drive crashes, you're not going to lose it forever. I mean, as long as you don't misplace your negatives, you can scan them in 20 years and they'll still be just as good as they were last week. Yeah. Um so it's it's a little more permanent, it's more tactile, it's more intimate and I know I'm doing a lot of talking during this interview, but like I'm a fairly quiet person. I'm a fairly monkish person, I guess. <laughs> and so like spending hours at a time, like in the dark by myself, just kind of patiently and meditatively, like kind of making these objects. Uh, and at the end of the day, I might only have two or three, but I know they're really good. That just kind of tickles my, uh, my central nervous system in a way that um, pushing around JPEGs just doesn't quite match. <laughs> well, it, it's almost like that they're they're your creations, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Whenever you make a print, or even if you don't get go to the point of making a print, if you're just shooting and developing the film, you did that. You process processed it. You you know you it, it's your creation, and there's something magical about it. You know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the the river project that I'm working on right now. Um, all my other major projects have been digital. The River Project I'm working on now is exclusively on film because I shoot so much digital for work. I just needed some separation from work because oftentimes I'll work multiple 14-hour days uh, during the work week and maybe straight on through the weekend. And so when I'm shooting just for myself, I need the process to be different enough so that I don't feel like I'm just working uh, again, so using a different camera, using a different process kind of helps with that. And it takes me kind of to a different headspace in terms of how I'm thinking about something. I'm not thinking about deadlines and getting every conceivable detail. I'm thinking about what I'm feeling in that moment and what the what the river or the landscape or the person in front of me, what are they telling me? And being open enough to listen to them as uh, 
as a photographer and as an image maker and a storyteller, those are, those things are always much more organic and um and intimate using film for me than just, you know, spray and pray with a digital camera. Yeah, are you using the uh, the C three thirty with your uh, uh, watershed project or any of the other projects? Um, I'm using the C330 for the watershed project. I'm also using a uh, Yashica mat from 1957. Uh, It was made the year my mother was born. So every time I kind of carry that out with me, it feels like I have a little friendly spirit with me. And I'm also um, shooting the the pinhole camera that you guys borrowed uh, for a little bit. It's a four by five pinhole camera. Uh, I've used a little bit of a a speed graphic. So another four by five image maker. And I've also shot a little bit with a camera that I know that caught your eye, uh, Mario, which is the the Nikkor Mat um, yeah. EL2, uh, and that's just that's a, a sweet little camera to carry around if I feel like shooting 35 millimeter and it's got a nice little lens on it. And yeah, if I'm going to be climbing a mountain, I'm not going to be taking a, a four by five camera. I might just take yeah. the the Nikkor Mat. <laughs> it's yeah. a little bit easier on my back and my knees. <laughs> shooting little bitty 35 millimeter <laughs> they do making, feel itty bitty after four by five for sure i'm making fun of myself because uh i i am pretty much stuck with uh 35 i, I do love 35 uh, the format although i'm venturing into 120 but i just i adore 35 so <laughs> all right well suzanne uh, what's your next question um well i i had actually a couple um <laughs> of course um the first one was um do you find it hard going back and forth? Because I shoot digitally for for work too, um, and sometimes I do find the transition back and forth between digital and film is like I have to remind myself, oh yeah, I'm not, <laughs> or when I pick up my digital again, it's like, oh yeah, I can take more than one. Do you do you find that, or is a pretty easy transition not a big deal for you? Um, it's it's not so much of a big deal. I. One of the things I like about film is that because it's so much slower, I can be more thoughtful with it. Yeah. With with work, especially newspaper deadlines, sometimes, you know, we go to press on Wednesdays. And sometimes, you know, midday at Wednesday, my boss will say, go get an A1 photo. Um, you know, page one of the newspaper, the front page is page A1. Um, he said, go get an A1 photo. And I'll say, how much time do I have? And he's like, 15 minutes. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, it's like... Versus when I go out with a, especially a pinhole camera, like I can wander around, I can like look at right. the trees, I can look at the river, I can set up my tripod, I can measure the light, and I open the shutter and it's like, okay, it's 25 minute exposure, I can sit down and read a book for a while. You know? right. wow. <laughs> so minutes, that would give me some serious anxiety. <laughs> Somebody yeah. told me I had to go. You got to go get that right now, right now. Uh, consistently, that's that happens. That doesn't happen every week, but probably yeah. at least two weeks a, a month. I'll have to go out and on demand conjure up a photo that's good enough to be on the front page of the newspaper, and I might yeah. only have 15, 20 minutes to do it. And you start getting real creative, <laughs> real yeah, fast sure. when you're that's you're true. working with those constraints. Um, that my favorite picture I've gotten that way was a. Uh, uh, a summer day, not unlike today, um, the local uh, musical group, the children's musical group, was uh, having lunch after during rehearsal. And it was a really hot day, and so they were all kind of hiding in the shade, eating lunch outside, but their legs were sticking out into the sunshine. And so oh. I just got a picture of all these legs, this, these disembodied it. legs sticking out <laughs> from the shadows. Um, oh, that's awesome. You know, so it's like you, awesome. sometimes just uh, people eating lunch outside can give you an A1 photo. Oh, nice. Absolutely. <laughs> Well, like bringing it back to film, of course, that we all love. Um, I learned that you are a darkroom printer, that the that Julia Mario went and took a class, right, from you? 
for document printing. Um, I'm wondering what your favorite part of that whole process is. If you could identify it. I don't oh, know if I always can. <laughs> um, well, first off, they're, they're very different skills from being a photographer. There's um, some photographers who are amazing photographers who are kind of mediocre or poor printers, even by their own estimation. And there are mm -hmm. some amazingly good printers uh, who aren't necessarily like all that comfortable behind the camera. So I just kind of want to note that like, it's okay if you excel at one and not the other. Um, and there are some days when I feel like I'm not a very good photographer and a much better printer. And there are also some days when I feel like I'm not a very good printer and I'm a much better shooter. Yeah. But um, in terms of making images in a darkroom, I think my favorite part of it is seeing something come up out of the developer. And that first, it's the closest to alchemy you can really get in the real world. It's like, here's literally a blank sheet of paper. That right. You stick it in some, it looks like water. There's just clear liquid mm -hmm. in a tray. You just stick right. it in the water and kind of, you know, say your little prayer in your head and hope it doesn't <laughs> turn to com complete blackness right in front of you. Um, right. It's like, that's where my heart is right now. Just total black when that happens. Oh, um, right. But you, know, you put it in there and you, keep an eye on the timer and a minute or two minutes later you pull it out and now you have a piece of artwork that was seconds before just a blank sheet of paper and I think that's my favorite moment of it but also that's cool. the, the end of the full process of knowing okay here's a thing that I made um, mm -hmm. and overall the whole process is a lot of fun I, I really like the process of getting everything set up on the enlarger and the feeling of okay I finally nailed my exposure I nailed my dodging and burning whatever that might be or if you're using different filters and doing um, uh, split contrast printing, taking careful notes and all that. But once you get it, once you nail it, and you say, "Okay, this is what I, what I want. This is exactly what I want it to be." That that kind of moment of like, it's not quite a eureka moment. Yeah. Sometimes it's a finally moment. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah, that, I, I feel like I like that process a lot too. I tried um, lith printing not so long ago. That's kind oh, of painful. Like I absolutely <laughs> love the outcome, but sitting there and I'm like, okay, 15 minutes, maybe five minutes. I don't know. And not getting to see that image emerge for some time is it's a little bit tough for me, but yeah, I still love it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you, um, here's a, a question back for, for y'all. Like, um, when you spend time in a dark room or when you're printing, do you listen to music when you're printing? What do you, is it just in kind of, uh, the silence of your own thoughts in those moments. Like, <laughs> I'm curious because I, I remember hearing uh, when I was in school that um, our professor told us that we should never listen to music while we print because it'll affect our mood and our mood will affect what our final images look like. So I'm curious as to, to what you think of that. I do. I do listen to music. And I can tell you sometimes it distracts me because I get <laughs> like if it's a really like I'm singing, I'm, I'm moving around, I, I start missing things. Mm hmm. And so I'm not as careful. So I didn't, I've never put that together. So thank you. <laughs> Maybe I'll stop <laughs> listening to, or make it mellow music or something. <laughs> Shift from heavy metal to Harry Chapin or something. Right, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I know for me, my attention span is apparently very short and I struggle, Mario knows this. I am not really a delight to be in a dark room with because I'm like, how much, how much longer do I have to do this for? And I don't really like the dark. I like safe <laughs> light. I like the red light and I can do my own thing in there. But um, when it comes to all the steps 
that it takes to make a really good print, like we've seen you demonstrate in the in the big dark room. I really want to make prints, but I don't think I'm ever going to make a good print because my my ability to focus for that long and to take the accurate notes, even when I try super hard, I end up at the end going, I still didn't do it. Or, you know, looking back at what I wrote when I try to reference it and going, I forgot to write down all of those other details. So that what I did write is totally useless. So I have a I have a vintage um, Kodak timer. So that's all I listen to. And I try to um, focus on counting <laughs> the time to not get distracted and ruin it. So my my desire and my ability don't really mesh there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, yeah that, that's kind of where I'm at too. Um, I don't I don't listen to music. M- music would distract me because I love music so much. So I just listen to one e and a two e and a three and a four e and a in my head, <laughs> and I try to associate it with years or like uh, centuries or things like that. If it goes into you know a, a long period of time, then I just try to associate it with some special number or some sequence of numbers. And that really helps me to, to pass the passage of numbers. If you know what I mean, if you can sense oh, what I mean. So gosh, I'm just doing one, 1000 and you're seeing the rise and fall of Rome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. Well, um, I think, let's see, Julie, uh, it's your turn for your next question. Is that right? Well, I have, I have a dark room question for you. Um, and I, I know that you are really concerned about the environment. I know I am too. I'm sure Suzanne and Mario are. And that is something that mentally I battle about with photography, that we're really dependent on a lot of chemicals and on a lot of highly processed things like the film itself, the emulsions on it, all the chemicals we use for the developing and um, then again for printing. Um, how do you approach that in a like in a way that's responsible for the planet that you can feel good about? And like, what do you think that we all need to know and be practicing so that we can enjoy it and not be doing harm at the same time? That's a that's a really good question, and that's something actually that I've thought about quite a bit, especially doing a project about the environment and a project about my local watershed, you know, it's something that I think about a lot because especially in the dark room, what you notice right away is you're using a whole lot of water. And like, regardless of what goes down the drain or what you have to take to your household hazardous waste disposal day, which is where you should take most of your photochemicals, especially the fixer, um, you're using a lot of water and the processes required for making film, even just making the, the backing for the emulsion, that requires a lot of water. And I also, to be honest, I also think about in terms of digital photography, there's a lot of heavy metals that have to be mined to make camera batteries. There's a lot of lithium and lithium's a finite resource an increasingly finite resource on this planet. And there's a lot of lithium that needs to be dug out of the ground and very heavily processed to make camera batteries for digital cameras, as well as light meters and cell phones and everything else. And cobalt goes into circuits and all sorts of different things. So I think in terms of concrete things, in terms of darkroom printing and silver gelatin printing, the, the main things are um, not flushing anything down the drain that doesn't 
have to be flushed down the drain. There are some things, okay, you can just kind of, okay, whatever, throw it down. But if you're printing at scale and you're doing more than like a print or two per week or per month, then you really need to be responsible in terms of how you dispose of your chemicals. Uh, there's not a whole lot of choice on the market in terms of environmentally friendly or uh, environmentally conscious chemistry that's available for purchase. I think as consumers, something we, I wish more photographers and more artists would do, um, including people in other mediums. If you're, uh, if you're a lithographer or if you're an illustrator, um, if you're a painter, like figure out like what's the source of your materials. Are those things ethically sourced? If you're a painter or an ink. Uh, like a woodblock printer, like find out like if you're using India ink, what kind of India ink is it and how do they make it? Uh, if you're a photographer, how are they making the tools and the materials and the, the disposables that you're using? And then to be honest, like maybe it's time for a bunch of photographers and artists to really kind of put the screws to Fuji or Nikon or Ilford or whomever it might be and say like, you need to be more responsible in terms of what the, what are you giving us? I know one corporate example that's a bit of a success story to a certain extent is Lego is no longer um, using a, a large amount of fossil fuels to make um, all the little Lego pieces. And oh. I think um, and there is this really great kind of satire. Uh, I think Greenpeace um, was behind it. They took the, the the big theme song from the Lego movie, which is everything is awesome. Mm -hmm. And they, they slowed it down and put it in a minor key and showed all these Lego polar bears slowly drowning in oil, <laughs> uh -huh. which is like a very clever, like way of making a point, but it worked. And, you know, a couple of years later, Lego said, okay, we're only going to use like sustainable materials to actually <laughs> make all these toys uh, rather than just using um, fossil fuels. Uh, in terms of the actual polymers and stuff that they're using to make the Lego bricks and everything. So, like, that's a success story. And I think there are some examples of um, photo materials kind of shifting to alternative processes to make certain things. But I think that's more to do with scarcity than it is to do with what consumers want or what the market will necessarily support. So, it's, yeah, it's kind of up in the air. Um, but in terms of what individual uh, makers and artists and printers can do is don't flush anything down the drain that shouldn't be. Uh, find out what your local household hazardous waste disposal day is. There's usually one or two a year, um, wherever a listener might be in the United States, and you drive your stuff to the dump or the transfer station or whatever waste facility there is, and they'll take that stuff off your hands, and depending on what it is, they'll dispose of it in some safe way. And... Uh, yeah, I think being really responsible with it and think about, you know, everything that you buy, think about what what's the its end of life. Um, you know, th that's the reason why, for the most part, like I use a watch all the time in the dark room so I could like keep track of timers and things like that. My watch is a mechanical watch because I'm not comfortable throwing away batteries and having them just end up in a landfill. If you mm -hmm. think about it, every piece of plastic you ever thrown away, it's still there. It's still there somewhere. Every piece of cellophane, every tack, every thumb drive, every every old like set of headphones, it's still there sitting in the ground somewhere. And you know, that's that's a disquieting thought after a while. Yeah. There you is know, no way. <laughs> <laughs> um something, can I sorry. Go ahead. One thing that we did learn in that class um with you, Dylan, was about stand developing. Yes. And so we now have been almost exclusively doing all our black and white with stand developing, um, not for the end result for myself, you know, for it being perhaps a better image, but 
because of how much less of the chemicals that you have to use. Mm-hmm. Like the ratio is so much smaller that that's um, one thing that I appreciate that you shared with us because we'd never tried that or heard of it before. And I feel like that's really something that can impact the amount of at least HC110 or whatever you're diluting. You know, the amount you're using is so much less processing mm-hmm. that way. And it's great for hanging on to those highlights. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I do have a question about that, um, if you don't mind. Um, you said, uh, you, you know, talked about using or disposing disposable of chemicals. And then, then you said, especially the, the fixer. Now, what about the developer? Because I know that with the fixer, you can reuse that over and over again up to a certain point. But with the developer, at least as far as the developer, like we use HC 110, uh, that has to be, you know, it's a one shot. So you dispose of it after every time. Um, is that safer to dump down the the drain, so to speak? Or is that something that would need to go to, uh, you know, dis- uh, hazardous waste as well? Uh, that depends a lot on the developer. Um, I-, I tend to use D76 because it's the most common and I've I have the most kind of consistent results across different kinds of film. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that there are a bunch of, I mean, there's zillions of different ways you can match up different developers and different films and different dilutions. But just in terms of consistency and availability, I tend to use T76. Mm-hmm. Um, and that stuff you can reuse and you can kind of replenish it and use it uh, at least until it, it spoils more or less. It'll spoil the same way a gallon of milk will spoil. Yeah. But in the long run, I think, I think it it depends on the local laws and regulations, uh-huh. but if you look on the side of the bottle and it has that little icon of a dead fish sitting on the ground next to a dead tree, it's probably a good idea to call your local like uh, waste disposal company and ask like what's the the correct process for this, and that can vary pretty widely. I I kind of question the legitimacy of certain local laws where it says, you know, it's, it's legal to, to pour this out on the ground in some places, but not legal to do it in other places, mm. which means like, to me, I, I hear that and I think, well, what makes it safer in one state and less safe in another, you know, like maybe we should all like hold ourselves to higher standards other than lower ones, perhaps. So yeah. yeah, that's one of those things where like, yeah, we, and that's a question in terms of running the dark room here with the White River Craft Center that I've been uh, kind of constantly badgering uh, the management of the uh, the organizations. Like, okay, what's our plan for dealing with this? And what's our plan for dealing with that? And they're like, can't you just throw it out? And I'm like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can't. <laughs> Not in good conscience. Well, yeah, couching it in uh, in the way that you described it, like, you know, every everything that we do has an effect on future generations and and just the environment in general so we do have to be conscious about even the small things so yeah Mm -hmm. it's a good thing to remember well um my next you know official question i i wanted to talk about um just photography film photography and people's interest in it you know uh all of us are you know relatively the same of a similar similar age relatively you know um and we all have had a a, a toe or a foot into film photography because of when we grew up. But it seems like, well, my question for you is, do you find uh, that there are actual young people, you know, uh, uh, people of say the Gen Z uh, generation or younger or maybe slightly older who are getting more interested in photography or is, and especially film photography? Do you find that to be the case? 
yes and no. I know film photography has certainly had a, a bit of a resurgence in the past five to ten years. Mm-hmm. I think that's a bit of a reaction to the the iPhone era of photography. There are certainly um. I think photography in general is having like a bit of a mini golden golden age in a certain sense because yes, film isn't as popular as it once was, but it's still here and it's still available. You can still shoot, you know, if you are industrious, you can you can still shoot four by five film just as easily as you can whip out your your iPhone. You have to be more patient and you have to figure out how to get your hands on it, but it's it's still available and it still exists. Yeah. And when you think of the plurality of all the things in photographic history and in art history that are now available to us it's like everything is on the table right now that said i um i don't know that there are that many gen z folks who are taking up film photography but who themselves are are definitely passionate about photography itself they're just doing it with the the tools that are most easily available and accessible to them when i was 14 15 16 years old the tools that I had was like this little silver plastic Minolta Maxim 5. It wasn't like a Nikon F4 and it wasn't a Pentax K1000. Um, and, and it definitely wasn't a speed graphic. It was this plastic uh, SLR with a kit lens. And that was the best tool I had, but that was, that was what was around. And that's what I learned upon. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure there are some old shooters who are like, Oh, like those, those youngsters with the built-in light meters, they don't know how lucky they have it. And then I'm sure their, uh, their elders and, and, and their mentors are saying, oh, like these people with, you know, glass plates back in my day, we had to do hand coating our, all our own emulsions. They don't know how lucky they have it. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. so I think each generation has like a, um, some innovation that they, they know as standard and that the generation before them uh, still views it as novel. Um, I think I'm kind of among the last generation that learned on film. Uh, and then like I learned film in high school and then shot mostly digital in college. And I think I was right on that line. Um, I remember I was, I went off to college right around the time that digital cameras were being just good enough that you could eke out an eight by 10 from a, a digital image. It was like, it was just barely there. Yeah. And, and, and the time since then it's like, Oh, well, like <laughs> the world's changed in so many different ways. Um, sure. I, I did have, uh, an intern uh, at the newspaper who, um, I was showing her, okay, here's where we keep all the negatives. And I pulled out the sleeve of 35 millimeter negatives and she's like, Oh, I've heard of these. <laughs> I was like, Oh gosh, <laughs> uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go take my arthritis medication now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, that's funny. That's funny. Um, Suzanne, what's your next question? You know, I actually think I got my last question answered because we were talking about galleries and I was just curious if you were interested in getting into gallery shows. I mean, I'm sure you're pretty well known for your documentary work, but you mentioned, yes, maybe doing shows coinciding with a book. So that's very exciting. That was sort of my last question, though. So (laughs) I I did have it answered. So somebody else with a good productive question should go next. (laughs) I, I did have two shows this past year. Oh gosh, that's um, yeah. great! I had a, a black and white show um, at a at a tattoo gallery. Actually, that was mostly my film work. And then, in a in a coffee shop, just kind of uh, across the way from the the tattoo gallery, about a block okay. and a half away, I had uh, a bunch of much more colorful digital work, for, mostly from my newspaper stuff. So it was kind of the, okay. well, that's the, cool the that two headed operation. <laughs> yeah. What kind of work did you have that was uh, presented in the tattoo shop? It was the the water project stuff. Okay. 
yeah, so a lot oh. of black and white images. And the stuff that was uh, in the coffee shop was pictures of, you know, kids playing fiddle at the the Tunbridge Fair and, you know, newborn other kind babies. Of newborn babies. Newborn babies. <laughs> things like year. that, yeah. Much more colorful, um, much more kind of in the, the newspaper realm of kind of right. community journalism. Uh, much prettier pictures, but maybe uh, less maybe a little less thought provoking and just more pretty and fun and celebratory. Whereas sure. my black and white work is a bit more, um, uh, I don't want to say unsettling, but thought provoking maybe. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Well, you do have some it's interesting to have that for a venue. Oh, I just said he, that he does have some unsettling to me images, particularly the ones um, of, uh, I call them claw marks. I don't know what the technical term would be, but you know, like <laughs> hillside okay. that have been mechanically. Oh, from an excavator, yeah. By excavators, I hate that kind of. I don't like seeing it. Hate is a really strong word. If I was buying a mountain and building a house, maybe they would be different for me. But I just see erosion, and I see a mountain that's going to take millions of years to be recycled and come back up. <laughs> mm -hmm. that, it's I, funny you say that. Like I, That picture was taken. There was a gallery show, like a group show, and the assignment was uh, Monsters. And so people, there's, it was all different kinds of artists. I was one of the only photographers, but people had all these different depictions of monsters, everything from Boris Karloff up to like certain politicians to you know, you name it, like anything you can think of that was a monster. And I was thinking, okay, what am I going to do with my little film camera centric life? And I was out driving around and I saw this spot where like a new housing development was being built. And I jumped out of the car and ran over and I took that picture where they had just been digging away at the hillside. And you can see all the dead trees in the background and everything. It's like, oh, this seems monstrous to me. That'll work. <laughs> do, you, do you shoot mostly um, on your, for your film work, do you shoot mostly black and white? Predominantly, yeah. Yeah, okay. it's usually HP5 or FP4. Um, I'll okay. shoot some slide film every now and then. Uh, occasionally, I'll shoot something like Ektar or um, Portra 400, but it's, it's okay. usually HP5. Um, and depending on the light and the day and what I'm shooting it with, um, I might push that to, to 800 or 1600, but it's usually okay. HP5, probably 80% nice. of the time. Okay. Nice, nice. Well, uh, I'll just go ahead with my last question and then Suzanne and Ju Julie, if you guys have any more questions, just uh, think of them and all that. Mm -hmm. um, so it's this is more of a lighthearted question, but if you had anywhere in the world or the universe, <laughs> if you want, anywhere that you'd like to go and you could only take one camera and if it's a film camera, you know, one selection of film, what would it be and where would you go? Oh, that's a good one. Um, well, I can probably tell you the the film and the camera. It would be HP five, and I would probably put it in my uh, my Yashica mat, uh, which recently developed a light leak. So I need to get some those light seals repaired, um, or just pull out the electrical tape. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I love that camera and that lens because it it's amazing. You know, you stop it down and you get some of the sharpest landscapes you're ever going to come across. And if you uh, 
don't stop it down all that much. You can take some really striking portraits with it. And um, even the the Boca has this kind of swirling otherworldly kind of portal to another universe kind of effect that I, I've not seen in other cameras, at least other cameras that have been manufactured since. There are sharper lenses that are out there, but there aren't lenses that have this kind of look to them. This camera has its own voice. And I think uh, it makes for a, a very... Um, a very compelling collaborator to be kind of working with that voice kind of in my hands. Um, in terms of where would I go? I've never been to Ireland and my family is from Ireland ancestrally. So I think mm -hmm. taking like, I don't know, a couple hundred rolls of HP five and doing like just a, you know, a, a, a real, a 10 year project. We'll call it that. How about that? A 10 year project, uh, like looking at like my ancestral homeland and maybe figure out like if I can find the specific homestead or something, um, or maybe do an ecological project about Ireland and the peat bogs and cultivation and agriculture, something like that. I've always wanted to go to Ireland and I feel like I would have a lot to learn. And that's, uh, that's what makes those sort of things exciting to me is kind of stepping off into the unknown and seeing what comes back. That's cool. That's cool. Couple hundred rules. That's going to be a big backpack. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I know. I laugh because I'm thinking about Farron going off to Italy with six rolls of film. Dude, <laughs> you need, you get need with the program. Twenty more. <laughs> That's all right. I told her. It's like shoot them all. Don't come home with anything unexposed. <laughs> yeah, I'll just get like a, a a mule or something. To yeah. carry. <laughs> when I went to India in high school, I took fifty nine rolls of film with me. Oh man, <laughs> where did you go to? In where, where did you go in India? Um, I went to a place called Ladakh, which is uh, way up in the northern part of the country, um, mm -hmm. past the Himalayas. Um, the campus that we stayed at was about eleven thousand feet up and the highest we got up to is about 18,000 feet and uh and I was shooting all film for all of that so if you if you go far back enough in my Facebook page you'll see a, see a very skinny Dylan Kelly uh shooting a whole bunch of uh XP2 super back in the day oh. back in 2005 oh. wow. <laughs> to go look for that 2005 yeah <laughs> when in 2005 uh spring it was my last semester of high school so what month uh, February to May. Oh my goodness. We were in India the same time. Holy hell. <laughs> <laughs> Julie and I spent two months in, uh, Southern India. We, w we flew into Mumbai and then traveled, you know, down to Bangalore, spent most of our time in Bangalore and, um, Mysore, uh, bas basically Tamil Nadu, Karnataka, oh, okay. yeah. um, and a little yeah. bit of Kerala. So. Oh, cool. Yeah. I was, um, way up where like the glaciers were pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> That's so cool. Well, we'll have to, after the podcast, we'll have to, you know, maybe share some photos or talk about India. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, the, and the adventures of getting your film through Indian x-ray machines. Uh, ooh, man. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, do you guys have any other questions? I don't think I do. Okay. I have one more if we have time. Okay, that's, sure. that's good. Um, I was wondering what advice you have. I mean, a lot of us that are taking pictures, we are content snapping pictures of our kids or our flowers. I have a lot of flowers and tree pictures. Um, but if somebody wanted to do something a bit bigger or was inspired by this interview to think of maybe taking on and creating a personal project like you're describing, um, but they don't know what, how would you encourage them to go about doing that? I think... 
not to get too philosophical, but I think Emerson said, uh, trust thyself. Every heart vibrates to that iron string. So at the end of the day, it's what do you care about? If, if it's your family, if it's your community, if it's the world that's outside your window. Um, to be honest, I've seen some photographic essays that have like moved me to tears of people photographing just in one room. Um, there was a person, I think, who uh, was experiencing some kind of medical emergency and in the process of this was more or less bedridden for like a year and a half. And she was only able to really photograph from her bed different things in her room. So not even able to move around the room, just what she could see from where she was. And it was a, a remarkable essay of just like her thinking about what her life was and what her life meant and what her life didn't mean also. And so like kind of going through that process of kind of self-examination and using what she could photograph and what she wanted to include or exclude with her viewfinder was how she explored that. Um, that was a really profound essay. So I think, yeah, at the end of the day is trust yourself and whatever is calling out to you, whatever is interesting to you, whatever is important to you. Sometimes what if something that's frightening, um, you know, if it's something that's catching your attention and something you can't stop thinking about, Beyond how to work the camera, beyond what gear you have, beyond what buttons and switches and bells and whistles, because that's the easy stuff, you know, that's like driving a car, you know, people freak out like, okay, if the camera's doing this, what do I do? Like, if you're going down the road in the car and it starts raining, you don't think, what do I do? You just reach over and you turn on the windshield wipers. So once you've got that kind of taken care of and in the bag, it's really uh, on you as a photographer to think about, you know, what do you care about and what are you interested in and what kind of keeps calling out to you and then keep following that as far as you can. And when you're, when you're done with the project, you'll know, you know, like, and it, if it might not be something that's like ready for like a master's level thesis in photography, uh, it might just be photographs of your family, but that's, that's okay. Someone uh, asked Jackson Pollock once, what are your, what are your paintings about? And he's like, they're, they're just paintings. You know, you don't look at flowers and ask what are flowers about? They're just, they're flowers and they exist and they're beautiful and your photographs can be beautiful and they can exist just because they exist. And they don't necessarily have to have uh, some, some deeply baked in meaning per se. You can just, you can make a totally valid image or collection of images simply because you want to and you like them. Well said. Well like said. <laughs> well, Dylan, thank you so, so much for uh, being on the podcast. This has been enlightening. <laughs> in, a, in a good way that's what i'm, I'm meaning in yeah, a good way it's been really truly good cool cool I'm, I'm glad that i was able to to chime in for a little bit and it's and it's good to see y'all again it's good to to talk photo stuff and yeah we'll have to grab a coffee at some point and uh take all of our cameras for a walk yeah absolutely and uh to my wonderful co-host suzanne julie thank you guys so much for helping out this has been wonderful thank you it was fun yeah um, now, before we go, I want to get get everybody's socials. So first of all, we'll start with you, Dylan. Where where can we find, uh, where can anybody listening find your work? Um, well, if you're looking for my per, my professional work, you can go to ourherald.com. Uh, that's uh, the White River Valley Herald in, here in Randolph, Vermont. If you're looking for me personally, um, the best way to find my images is on Instagram, and that's Dylan Kelly VT. So D-Y-L-A-N. K-E-L-L-E-Y-V-T. That's my Instagram handle. And that's where you'll be able to find my work when I have uh, the time and the bandwidth to, to post stuff.
Nice. Suzanne, where can we find your work? Best place is Instagram and it's b.roll.backup. Nice. Yes. Julie, where can we find your work? It's same Instagram, just my name, I think. I'm not sure. JP, <laughs> JP, yeah. JP. Oh, JP shoebox pick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I forgot. <laughs> yeah, I'm the Sorry, same we way. Got you. <laughs> and you can find my work at uh, Instagram, Mario Piper, and also on Flickr, Mario Piper, uh, or Het Mestine. I can't remember. Look for either one of those and you'll find my work. But uh, again, thank you, Dylan, for being on. Thank you both, Suzanne and Julie. And to all you dear listeners, thank you so much for listening and keep those analog vibes alive. Mm -hmm.